to discuss things. Um, this session is Joe Parle, uh, Dispensational Development and Departure. He's going to talk about the differences between classical essentialist and progressive dispensationalism. Uh, Elliot's going to talk about a dispensational biblical theology and some issues related to that. I'm going to do Israel in the Book of Revelation. Uh, then we'll break for dinner, and then Andy Woods will discuss apocalyptic genre and hermeneutics. Uh, and so I'm looking forward. I think it'll be a good discussion for important presentations, and we'll try to discuss those and get our uh, get some issues raised that'll be helpful for people out there. So uh, thank you again for uh, being with us, and uh, Joe, come on and share with us. Thank you, Mike. It is such an honor to be here. Thank you, um, Dr. Andy Woods, uh, former professor at CBS. We, um, it's such an honor to be back here at Sugarland Bible Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Joe Parle. I'm the provost and senior professor at the College of Biblical Studies, um, where um, I have served for, um, in September, 22 years. And uh, it's an honor to be here. And um, for background reasons, I actually trusted in Jesus Christ my senior year of college at the University of Houston shortly after interning in our nation's Congress. And so I uh, was working for the chair of the Democratic Caucus at the time and became disillusioned with politics as a means of finding fulfillment. And a friend of mine shared the gospel with me, and I trusted in Jesus Christ my senior year. Um, I left politics and then started working at J.P. Morgan Chase Manhattan Bank, where I uh, shared an office with my supervisor, Kimberly Davidge, whose husband, Ron, was attending Dallas Theological Seminary. And while I was working there, I told Kimberly, I said, I believe that I'm called to the ministry, and um, so I don't know how long I'm staying. I had plans to go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School at the time, and she said, well, my husband is attending Dallas Theological Seminary. Why don't you just start taking classes there? And I thought, well, that'll be convenient. I can work at Chase and start at DTS Houston part-time and uh, with plans to uh, transfer to TEDS. And I uh, went to a wedding with my friend in Cleveland, and on the way to my visit to TEDS, I was in the airplane with a woman from Cleveland, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about attending Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, but I'm nervous because I'm from Houston and I hear it's really cold in Chicago. And she said, I would never live in Chicago. And I said, you're from Cleveland, right? And she said, absolutely not. It is way too cold in Chicago. And so then I began questioning God's calling for me to go to TEDS um, based on the weather <laughs> of all things. Um, but over time, as I took the classes at DTS, I began to really become very passionate about what I was learning there and how God was teaching me his word. And um, while I was at DTS, I um, took several systematic theology classes, and they all required Dr. Bach and Dr. Blazing's book, Progressive Dispensationalism. Even like you know, sanctification ecclesiology, you still had to read progressive dispensationalism, even though the book had very little to do with that. And um, I left DTS. Uh, my senior year, I was recruited to work at the College of Biblical Studies as a director of a technology access center. I left uh, DTS a progressive dispensationalist. I was persuaded that, you know, that was a more accurate um, understanding of the text. But to be frank with you, I wasn't really didn't really understand it. And Dr. Johnson tried to talk some sense to me when I took his classes. And I had actually came to him with this brilliant idea. Maybe there needs to be something between progressive and revised dispensationalism. We'll, we'll call it new revised dispensationalism. And I had planned on maybe doing a thesis on that or writing a book about that. And um, when I started working for CBS, Dr. Buck Anderson sat me down and said, I'd love for you to be on faculty, but I hear, hear you're a progressive dispensationalist. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to search every word of Greek, every use of the Greek word thronos for throne and see whether David's throne is in heaven or on earth. And so I did that word study. And sure enough, every time I saw David's throne reference, it was always on earth. And then I went to Israel Loken and Israel Loken challenged me and we had a lot of conversations. Um, 
But still, I wasn't really clear until I went to Baptist Bible Seminary uh, with Dr. Stallard. And it was there that for the first time, I really started understanding the differences between classical dispensationalism, essentialist, traditional, normative dispensationalism, whatever label you choose to put on it, and then progressive dispensation, and the implications of that and why those differences were really far more significant than I realized. And it was then that I decided to write a THM thesis very different than the one I proposed to Dr. Johnson several years earlier. And that turned into this book that was um, published by Exegetica Publishing, Dr. Christopher Cohn, called Dispensational Development and Departure. And what it is, it's an attempt to frame this in a way that a layperson can understand. Because if I was in a master's program and really couldn't distinguish the differences, I felt that there was a need to put this in a way that a layperson would understand. That's my goal in this paper, is to write, kind of discuss the differences in a way and the implications in a way that a layperson would understand. And what I tried to do here is I tried to just take every branch of theology and address how did... Um, Schaefer see it, how did Ryrie see it, and how did Bach? I took basically three different dispensationalists and compared them in every branch of uh, systematic theology and, um, and tried to come up with those differences. Today, I'm only going to focus on two aspects of the sine qua non of dispensationalism and show how they differ. And so I'm going to read the paper, it'll scroll on the screen. If you need a copy, we have some up front. You can just come up front and grab a copy or share with someone that is next to you. So the, uh, raise your hand if you don't have a copy. Uh, Dr. Steller is kind enough to, um, to pass them out. And then afterwards, I'd be glad to take questions. Uh, Dr. Christopher Cohn came up with this title. My, my original title, I thought of my book, was A Tale of Three Dispensationalists. But I think this is a much better title. Dispensational Development and Departure. Differences Between Classical, Essentialist, and Progressive Dispensations. Dispensationalism. While pursuing a master's at Dallas Theological Seminary, I struggled to understand what the big difference was between progressive dispensationalism and traditional dispensationalism. It was not until my PhD studies at Baptist Bible Seminary that I began to finally understand the issues. What I thought was a natural development in the history of dispensationalism from classical to what Bach and Blazing called revised dispensationalism to progressive dispensationalism was actually a development into a progressive dispensational model that was inconsistent with its predecessors. The purpose of this paper is to portray each position fairly in a way that does not require PhD studies to understand the issues. Before we get to that, I would like to define the positions. Classical dispensationalists include the initial teachers and scholars that defined and systematized the dispensational system. They include men like Darby, Schofield, Gabeline, and Schaefer. Classical dispensationalists had tremendous success in getting dispensationalism into the local church through the Schofield Reference Bible and Schaefer's systematic theology. They contributed to dispensationalism by establishing a literal hermeneutic, emphasizing the difference, a distinction between Israel and the church, and describing the nature of the dispensationalists, uh, dispensations. The next category of dispensationalists has been labeled in a wide variety of ways. Some argue there are only two categories, classical and progressive dispensationalists. For example, Leitner says, I think that progressive dispensationalists have made this clarification of initial, classical, and essential in order to simply argue that there have been these spurts of growth, development, and change. Therefore, their view is just another one. I want to categorically reject that thesis because I think there is a world of difference between various differences within the system and altering the foundation of the system. I liken the three essentials or sine qua non as the foundation upon which dispensationalism rests. You can't be a dispensationalist without these essentials in my opinion. As a result, Leitner prefers the phrase normative dispensationalism. While Baker acknowledges Leitner's approach, he prefers the phrase traditional dispensationalist. Bach and Blazing prefer the phrase revised dispensationalism. Here are some citations of... While I agree with Leitner's view that the two categories of dispensationalism, normative and progressive, the terms classical essentials and progressive dispensationalists will be employed in this paper. The term essentialist will be used for individuals like Ryrie, Walver, Pentecost, Leitner, as well as contemporary dispensationalists like Stallard, Cohn, and Elliot Johnson. 
The term essentialist refers to those who embrace three essentials that serve as the sine qua non, a Latin term which means without which none, or simply that is absolutely necessary, of dispensationalism that Ryrie developed. The separation of the church from Israel, consistent literal interpretation, and the doxological purpose of history. The term essentialist also seems less apt to cause offense than normative, essentially since, especially since essentialist is a term that Bach uses. Regarding the third category of progressive dispensationalism, Bach gives the following definition. Progressive dispensationalism focuses on the progress of revelation so that each subsequent dispensation represents progress in the unified plan of God. This approach argues for more continuity in God's plan than the other categories. Comparing classical essentials and progressive dispensationalism. This paper will compare the dispensationalist system on two aspects of the sine qua non, literal interpretation and the distinction between church and Israel. Perhaps the most important comparison is between the hermeneutical approach advocated by each category of dispensationalism. Hermeneutics has been defined by many scholars as the art and science of interpretation. Advocates of all three positions argue for a little literal hermeneutic, but how they define and apply this literal approach differs. For instance, Schaefer demonstrates his literal hermeneutic when he says, the prophetic story is largely the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the Palestinian divinic covenants. It includes also the realization of two divine purposes, the earthly purpose centered on Israel and consummation according to Psalm 2.6, and the heavenly purpose centered in the church and consummated according to, sorry, according to Hebrews 2.10. It is here declared that with complete assurance that as prophecies which are now fulfilled were fulfilled in their natural, literal, and grammatical meaning, in like manner, all that remains reaching to the eternal ages will be fulfilled in natural, literal, and grammatical way which predictions imply. In this quote, Schaefer uses natural, literal, and grammatical to describe his interpretive method. And the scope of literal interpretation encompassed the entire Bible, including the literal interpretation of Old Testament covenants, past prophecies, and future prophecies. One can see similarities between Schaefer's definition of literal interpretation and the essentialist definition of literal interpretation. Ryrie's famous definition of literal as clear, plain, and normal is reflected in his dis definition of literal, which he says is, to interpret plainly, one must first of all understand that each word means what each word means in its normal grammatical historical sense. In contrast to Schaefer and Ryrie, Blazing and Block rely on modern developments in scholarship to advocate for historical, grammatical, literary, theological, that's a mouthful, hermeneutic, because this fourfold description of hermeneutics is really what most mean when they speak simply of the historical grammatical method. Of course, this is not how Ryrie and Schaefer intended the literal or historical grammatical method. Importing theology into the interpretive process can cause a person to read into the Bible what his or her theology dictates. That's what scholars call eisegesis. Instead of reading the text literally before reaching theological conclusions. How can they still call themselves dispensationalists after advocating this position? Bach and Blazing contend that classical, dispensationalists, classical dispensationalism cannot employ this method since they do not seek to pr practice such a hermeneutic consistently or exclusively. What are Bach and Blazing referring to? They primarily are referring to the use of typology among classic dispensationalists. For example, Schaefer said, it is reasonable to suppose that when an account is given of the marriage of any man in the Old Testament who himself is a type of Christ, the marriage may have a typical signification. Moses is a type of Christ's deliverer, thus Zipporah, his wife, taken from the Gentiles while he was away from his brethren, is a suggestion of the calling out of the church during the period between the two advents of Christ. In contrast to Schaefer, Ryrie puts more limits on Old Testament symbols and types. Remember that when symbols, parables, types are used, they depend on an underlying literal sense for their very existence. And their interpretation must always be controlled by the concept that God communicates in a normal, plain, or literal manner. Ignoring this will result in the same kind of confused exegesis that characterized the patristic and medieval interpreters. 
Ryrie speaks of typology in a much more limited sense by arguing that God's clear communication would not make hidden messages in the Old Testament very likely. Personally, I prefer to only identify types as those things that the New Testament explicitly refers to as types in order to preserve a consistent literal approach to the Bible. The progressive dispensational approach to typology is used to establish their fourfold hermeneutic. Bach and Blazing Wright, progressive dispensationalists view typology as an aspect of historical literary interpretation. This is not the same kind of typology as practiced in classical dispensationalism. The latter was often a form of spiritual interpretation in which material objects, persons, or other phenomena represented something in the spiritual world. While there are differences between Ryrie and Schaefer's use of typology, these differences are not so significant to warrant different labels for each group or to argue that progressive dispensationalism is continuing the process of change started by essentialist dispensationalism. So essentially what I'm saying here is the difference is on the issue of typology, where um, I think the classical dispensationalists were taking literally the concept that the Old Testament points to Christ. And so that's one of the reasons why they would consistently read typology into passages that might not otherwise um, suggest typology. However, that doesn't mean at the core that it's a completely different hermeneutic. It simply is dealing with one area of typology. So in most of um, literal hermeneutics, there is vast agreement between, quote, the classical and the traditional or essentialist or normative interpretation. One of the most significant distinctions between the systems can be found in the approach to prophecy. With regard to hermeneutics and prophecy, Schaefer writes, none would question with fairness that prophecy now fulfilled has followed the literal method to the last detail. It is therefore both unreasonable and unbelieving to suppose that to relive, uh, to relieve some incredulity, the predictions yet unfulfilled will be realized in some spiritual manner. Ryrie argues that conservative interpreters often claim to hold a form of literal interpretation, but some do not consistently apply it to prophetic and eschatological fulfillment. He says all conservatives, whatever the eschatological persuasions, use literal and normal interpretation everywhere except eschatology. Progressive dispensationalists propose an already not yet hermeneutic to prophecy. This approach argues that covenants and kingdom promises have been partially fulfilled in an already sense, but the final fulfillment is still future. This already not yet hermeneutic is not unique to progressive dispensationalism. The concept was taught by George Ladd and other advocates of historic premillennialism long before Bach and Blazing published their book. Of course, historical premillennialism endorses a post-tribulational rapture and based on a faulty interpretation of Matthew 21, 43-44, historic premillennialists teach that God took the kingdom away from Israel and gave it to the church. Connections with historical premillennialism are not the only concern. The problem with the already not yet approach is that it necessitates a change of meaning that the original audience would not have understood. Furthermore, it does not account for the fact that most of the covenants are royal grant covenants that are ultimately fulfilled in eternity. To illustrate this, imagine a wedding taking place between Joshua and Rebekah. In that marriage ceremony, Joshua made a covenantal vow to love Rebekah for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, to love and to cherish until death do us part. When can it be determined that the covenant has been fulfilled? The vows are clear. The covenant cannot be fulfilled until death. If Joshua loves Rebekah for better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health for 15 years, but then divorces her in the 16th year, would a 15-year track record fulfill his covenant obligation? Clearly not. If Joshua loves Rebekah for better or for worse, richer or poorer, but fails to care for her anytime she's sick, has, um, I should say Joshua, uh, fulfilled the requirements of the covenant? Clearly not. In the same way, an eternal or perpetual covenant can only be fulfilled in eternity when all aspects are completed. As opposed to the partial fulfillment that progressive dispensationalists advocate, there may be times when Joshua's covenantal commitments are observed or realized. If Joshua does take care of his wife when she is sick, 
or her love stays strong during poverty, that reflects his efforts to comply with his covenantal obligation, but it does not fulfill his covenantal obligation because of the time requirement of commitment until death. With respect to the distinction between the church and Israel, there are other significant differences. Schaefer's distinction between the church and Israel was heavily influenced by his literal hermeneutic, as he wrote, that Israel will yet return to her land and experience great national blessing is one of the Bible's most positive predictions, a forecast which yields to no fanciful notions for its interpretation. It must either be accepted in its literal form or ignored completely. Ryrie agrees with Schaefer when he writes, the apparent dichotomy between heavenly and earthly purposes means this. The earthly purpose of Israel, of which dispensational speak, concerns the yet unfulfilled national promises that will be fulfilled by Israel during the millennium as they live on earth in unresurrected bodies. On this topic, progressive dispensationalism moves towards Ladd's notion of believing in only one people of God. They believe that this is true in an already sense through the church and ultimately in a not yet sense after the millennium. By arguing that the church fulfills covenants that were originally given to Israel, even in an already sense, the distinction between the church and Israel is further diminished. Thus, while there is significant agreement between Schaefer and Ryrie on this matter, the discontinuity with progressive dispensationalism is significant. Why does this matter? Hopefully this comparison has shown that there are very minor differences between classical dispensationalism and essentialist dispensationalism, but progressive dispensationalism departs from the dispensationalist tradition in significant ways. The departure does not merely involve tangential issues, but strikes at two of the core issues of the sine qua non. As defined earlier, the sine qua non issues of literal interpretation and the distinction between Israel and the church are absolutely necessary to qualify as dispensationalism. Instead, progressive dispensationalism incorporates theology into the interpretive hermeneutical process and borrows concepts from historical premillennialism to create a mediating position between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Assuming Walbert is correct that premillennial dispensationalism with its literal approach to the text is a great antidote to prevent literal interpretation, then the steps that progressive dispensationalism takes should be avoided. So essentially what I was just arguing here was that, um, first of all, progressive dispensationalism makes significant departures in that it incorporates theology into the interpretive process and incorporates other aspects that the original audience would not have necessarily understood. And then with regard to the church in Israel, by forming one people of God and using the already not yet hermeneutic, they are attributing fulfillment in the church age to the church and blurring the distinction between the church and Israel. Going back to that original illustration, so if Joshua makes a covenant with, um, let's just say her name is Rachel, that he will love her for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, that time element requires that that covenant is not fulfilled until death. When God made a covenant, he made it for eternity, forever. So ultimate fulfillment waits for eternity. Now, if Joshua has a son, let's just say Joshua's son is Jacob, and Jacob marries Rachel. If Joshua rejects his wife, but then cares for Rachel and takes care of her when she's in sickness and, and when she's poor, he's not fulfilled his original covenant to Rebekah. He's not fulfilled his covenant to his wife. It's great that he's taking care of uh, his daughter-in-law and he has a relationship to his daughter-in-law by virtue of the relationship with the son, but the fulfillment still requires that it's be done to the original audience. Progressive dispensationalism, when it blurs that distinction and it says, well, then Rachel is, uh, when, when God takes care of us, the Gentiles or the church, that he's somehow fulfilling promises made to Israel it blurs that distinction and it causes, I think, some serious differences. And, you know, once again, you can kind of see that progressive where that hermeneutic ends up taking us. Um, 
you look at the book Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals by Webb, and he proposes a higher ethic than even what is found in the Bible. So he takes this whole theological, literary, syntactical, and he goes to a hermeneutic that's even further beyond that. Um, So it's very easy to see how this is not just differences in the minors. I would say the distinctions between classical and what I'm calling essentials dispensational are just small differences in the minors. But when you get to progressive, it actually strikes at the core of what dispensationalism is. And so that's my presentation. I'd be glad to respond to questions or comments. To the, Take it to the question. Uh, we allow a time here for people to ask questions, and in fact, it'll be sometimes a very lively discussion. I've listed three or four things, Joe, that I want to ask you about, uh, but I'm going to save those and give everybody else a chance to go ahead of me. So if there are questions, just raise your hand, and I'll bring the microphone to you so that those who are, uh, especially those live stream, can hear uh, the questions. So does anyone have a question for Joe? You might want to identify yourself. <laughs> My name's Bob Clun, pastor at uh, Believers Bible Church in Lufkin. Where, where does the uh, New Covenant fit into various dispensationalists? Yeah, so what I, I would, uh, as, as far as the New Covenant or New Covenant in terms of New Covenant theology, which are you asking about? <laughs> yeah, the New Covenant. We actually um, had an entire book about the New Covenant. We had a whole list of papers I think when it comes to classical or essentialist dispensationalism, the issue with the New Covenant is really the nature of that fulfillment. In other words, I think every classical and essentialist is trying to give the, um, the New Covenant as described in the Old Testament and the New Testament its appropriate due. We're trying to interpret it literally. How that ends up manifesting itself within... Traditional dispensationalism. I actually wasn't at that conference. I know Dr. Johnson was. I know Dr. Stallard was. Sometimes it's going to be different. My personal position, going back to what I had described earlier, I don't think the church in any way fulfills the new covenant. I believe, going back to my marital illustration before, that covenant can only be filled in eternity with Israel in the land forever under the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I have no way in which the church um, fulfills the new covenant. I do believe that the church benefits from the new covenant. Similar to that illustration I made earlier, where, um, where I said that um, if the father has a son and the son gets married, so um, let's just say my son Joseph gets married, his wife will experience benefits from my relationship with my wife, um, and those benefits that, my, his, uh, that his wife experiences are a result of the covenant I made with my wife. But when I treat his wife, you know, there may be times when I actually do take care of her when she's sick. When she's poor, I might give them money. But if I fail to fulfill what I did with my original wife, with Susan, and I instead do it to my son's wife, that's not fulfilling anything. That simply is that she's experiencing the benefits of the covenant relationship I have with Susan. Now, I will tell you that there are traditional... And I don't know if you want to lay out the positions. You were there. I wasn't there. But there are many traditional dispensationalists or essential dispensationalists who, who disagree on this. But the core of it is we're all trying to approach it literally. We're all trying to give the Old Testament its due and the New Testament its due. How we get there is going to be different, but our hermeneutic at the core is not different, in my opinion. Yeah, that was 2009. That was a barn burner discussion <laughs> uh, we had. We were located at Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, for that particular one. Out of that came two books, actually. Yeah. Uh, one book edited by me, Dispensational Understanding of the New Covenant. It was a debate book. Had three views listed. The two covenants uh, view of Lewis Berry Chafer was not in the book because it was not represented by anybody at our council meeting. Uh, but we had the, we had three views uh, represented. Uh, one was no new covenant for the church period. Then one direct application, one indirect application. That was my labels. Whether they're the best labels or not, you know, we debate those things. But uh, 
Uh, I think it's settled because Darby and Elliot Johnson and I agree, right? <laughs> um, uh, we hold kind of the indirect uh, uh, view, so we see application to the church. But none of the views see fulfillment. Right. See, and that's the key. We want to protect Israel. But it is true, we have to be honest, the new covenant is the place where dispensationalists disagree with each other the most. That's the traditional dispensationalists disagree with each other the most. The other book was a book by the guys who don't believe that has any relationship to the church whatsoever, and they wrote a book with several articles in it for that. So it is a sticky wicket, as we say sometimes. From, I'm from Alabama. Do you guys know that term, sticky wicket? <laughs> um, so it's a sticky wicket area, but we do agree on some things. Our view of the Christian life is not like this. It's like this. Uh, and um, so it, maybe it's much to do about nothing, but uh, we certainly had a good time arguing uh, in 2009. So, Okay, anybody else have a question? Feel free to just go out there. We promise not to step on you because I'm going to step on him in just a minute, so don't worry <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, we're kind of used to the give and take. Okay, all right, I'll start asking. Okay, first thing, I, I wrote the very top of the first page, Joe. Oh, wow. What would Daryl Box say about your paper? Has he read your book? Not that I'm aware of, so um, I probably should send it to him. I would hope that he said I represented it fairly. Um, I tried to represent You know, I, the irony of it is I was a progressive dispensationalist at one time. So I was actually asking myself the question, if I read this, would I think that I had... Um, represented, I was represented fairly. Obviously, he'll disagree that with my conclusion that he has violated what I consider to be two of the sine qua non of dispensationalism. Um, I think he would probably argue that I've been too harsh with him on his view of hermeneutic, and it's just a inadequate, unscholarly perspective that I am sticking with clear, plain, and normal historical grammatical hermeneutic. Um, but I would hope, at least if he read the book, he felt like I represent him well. What I try to do as much as possible is quote and represent fairly those quotes and say why. You know, Now, I will tell you why I was a progressive dispensationalist when I left um, DTS is I actually got there through a literal hermeneutic. I was really struggling with Colossians 1.13, which you later explained to me. I was struggling with the new covenant. In other words, I felt that sometimes traditional dispensationalists, in order to protect their system, ignored literal interpretations of certain texts. And so when we were in our seminary class and I asked you about being transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of great light, and that you explained to me, well, when does that happen? That happens at the point of rewards, right? That's not a current thing, you know, that the kingdom of light, that that's, that transference is, is actually dealing with a context of reward. I finally got a, a literal understanding of that text yeah. that fit within that perspective. Yeah, that, yeah, the idea there in Colossians 1.13, yeah. uh, the kingdom is future, but the, but we are positionally kingdom citizens already. No. Yes. Okay. All right. Somebody besides me, praise the Lord. I was just going to say, um, for the folks online, there's a lot of people watching. So you people online, feel free to put your questions there in the comment box and I, I could read them. But the, you know, Colossians one thirteen is interesting because it has the word inheritance. Yes. Um, and so that's a, that almost never comes up. Yeah. That's the context. You know, when I got to Baptist Bible, I was still struggling with these issues. I was you know, Buck and Israel had convinced me, but I was kind of a leaky traditional dispensationalist at that point. I was still struggling. Um, and that's why I really appreciate the council is, you know, one of the things we've tried to do is take a hard look at some of these passages. What do we deal, you know, can we, is there a literal interpretation of some of these passages that are, quote, difficult, that are used against us? You know, and I think that, that to me, when I found answers, I think that helped me, um, and so I do think there are some progressive dispensationalists that, are, that arrive there due to a, a literal hermeneutic. In other words, they're struggling with certain passages and whether um, we are committing eisegesis in terms of how we interpret those passages. There are others, I think, though, that adopt a completely different hermeneutic. Uh, you're saying there, a lot of progressives went there, adopted that because they viewed traditionalists as being too theological in their ter yes. interpretation model. And I agree that that did exist. Uh, anybody else have a question? Number two on my list. 
Rob, questions yet? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I did not. It's actually on Amazon. Um, I did not bring many today, but it's uh, it's on Amazon. You can order it. Um, it's also on Exegetica Publishing. Uh, Chris Cohn's. I did not bring many. I think I have two copies. So, <laughs> but yeah. look, I will give you one. So if you like one, you're welcome to have he'll, it. Sorry. He'll sell you one for twenty five and uh, <laughs> and give you a break and go two for forty. Here you go, sir. Okay. Now now everybody else feels bad. <laughs> okay. My second question is and goes to the typology. And I do think I think you've laid out the historical changes in typology there mm-hmm. in outline form very well. But I you know the I, and I agree with your statement. I prefer to only identify types as those things that the New Testament explicitly refers to as types. Do you have any Exceptions. That's my question. Joseph. Yeah. And I wrote down two. Joseph was one of those two. And the other one was Isaac in Genesis 22. Do we have an explicit reference to that? This is where I get in trouble with Dr. Johnson. So this is where <laughs> I, um, where I, uh, where he and I, and we actually debated this a few years ago when he sternly warned me on my position. Um, and I think that was the same one where Dr. Thomas called me a heretic. Um, was I believe that the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament, not every use of the Old Testament and New Testament is exegetical. In other words, I have categories for how the New Testament author is using the Old Testament. Sometimes I think there's an exegetical use where he is literally discerning the meaning. Sometimes there's an expositional use um, where he is expositing a text. Sometimes I think there's direct application where he doesn't go through the exegetical process and and the expositional process transparently, but he comes with a direct application. Um, And do not muzzle an ox, you know, Paul's use of that, um, where he also uses the New Testament as well, that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul doesn't go through the whole process of how he's applying it, um, but there is a direct application. I leave room for allusion and for illustration. So I take allusion to be where there is an allusion borrowing the language. An old, a New Testament author is borrowing the language of the Old Testament. You know, and so if uh, if Doctor Woods came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, after the after the swim meet, can you come back and?" teach at my church for four hours, I might say, well, Dr. Woods, you know, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. I mean, I'm sorry, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm saying I'm Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That means I'm borrowing language, that I'm utilizing similar language, and I'm not indicating that it's necessarily a fulfillment. And then the fifth category I have is illustration. Um, And we see that with the, the, in Galatians, with the son of the bondwoman versus the son of promise. I take typology to be in that last category of illustration um, and I may once again use that in, as, a, as a teacher so for example people who teach on leadership principles in the book of Nehemiah I don't think the book of Nehemiah was written to teach you leadership principles I think it was written to describe how Israel built a wall during the exile and how God sovereignly protected them to do that but are there illustrations from the book of Nehemiah about leadership we do the same thing when we teach biblical counseling, right? Saul and suicide or, um, you know, was Saul schizophrenic? You know, those type of things. And so I prefer to narrow typology as much as I can. So I prefer to stick with what I had. So no, I wouldn't say Joseph was a type of Christ. No, I wouldn't say Isaac was a type of Christ. Now, I could very well get to heaven and God tell me, yes, Joseph was a type <laughs> of Christ. yes. Isaac was a type of Christ. But my personal preference, because typology is so abused, is to keep it as okay. narrow as, as that's, possible. That's fair. Would you, be, uh, would you be able to say that those are analogies? Mm-hmm. Okay. Or illustrations. I mean, that's okay. how I've been same, same using kind of. the concept. That, is Joseph an illustration of Christ? Yeah. I think, he could, I think there are illustrations of Joseph's life that could compare to Christ. Same thing with Isaac. 
Okay. This is actually a question for Dr. Johnson. Can I Ooh. do that? All right. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, one of our faculty at Chafer. He says, can someone ask Dr. Johnson to elaborate on his statement that fulfilled in part is not the same thing as partially fulfilled? And apparently you said that in your book, so... That was language I used many years ago. So I'm not quite sure that I remember as well as your, your questioner does. Genesis, I'll be using Genesis 3.15 in our discussion, in the paper. That I've, in his first advent, Jesus fulfilled the aspect of the serpent striking the heel of Christ and he died but it doesn't address striking the head of the serpent which doesn't come until his second advent so and my language may have been a little but there's a partial fulfillment in the first advent Genesis 3:15. there's a complete fulfillment in his second advent But it's fair to say, Dr. Johnson, that the partial part is completely fulfilled. In other words, you only get there because the striking on the heel is done. It's not, in other words, that's different from an already not yet because the already not yet is saying the partial is almost like 35% fulfilled. But you're saying Genesis 3.15, the striking on the heel is 100% fulfilled and we're waiting for the um, crushing of the serpent's head to be 100% fulfilled in the future. I completely agree with that distinction. Joe, I think I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I agree with your, your restrictions on typology. Where I've come, come to is that, as you, just using the term patterns, mm -hmm. or that you have a lot of patterns, but I'm not sure I would use them. You know, a type is... You have a clear statement, 1 Corinthians 10, Christ is the rock. Yep. Okay, that's that's precise. But other than that, you don't have, but you do see there's a lot of patterns. There's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily types. Okay. Agreed. The, other, the, the question I really had was, are you familiar with... Um, both Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Michael Rydelnik have articulated four ways in which the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. No, I haven't studied that. No. What what four ways did they articulate? Well, okay, and because I, I like that, but I, I want to interact with someone who sure. may not uh, and under, really understand. It's the first way is that it's a uh, it is a literal prophecy. Mm -hmm. Micah 5.2, mm -hmm. and there's a literal fulfillment. Mm -hmm. The second way is that there is a historical event that is applied uh, typologically mm -hmm. to Christ. Okay. Okay. Uh, out of Egypt, I think this is the one, I get these too confused sometimes. Uh, out of Egypt, I call my son. Mm -hmm. That's a historical event, but it's applied typologically to Christ. Then you have a... Um, a historical event that is uh, applied to Christ. Okay, that's dis similar to but distinct from typology. And then the third one is s what he calls summary. And in the summary view, uh, Jesus, the, the, the Messiah would be called a, a Nazarene. But there's no specific passage. Now, there's the, the view that many of us have heard that it relates to vine and, and uh, Netzer. But he argues that what you have is, um, is, is in, in Israel, you have kind of an idiom that if somebody's not real bright, uh, not real sharp, not a lot of potential, then they're from Pasadena. Oh, no, that, that's us. <laughs> um, they're from Nazareth. And so you have these various statements that Jesus is rejected. He's comely. He doesn't look attractive. He, you know, so therefore, sort of a summary of these negative type portrayals would, would be 
found in calling him a Nazarene. He fits that negative portrayal like somebody from Arkansas whose family tree doesn't fork, those kinds of things. Yeah, I would say when it's actually a prophecy about Christ. So when I was using the use of the OT and NT, I was beyond Christ. In other words, even dealing with, like I mentioned earlier, not muzzling an ox and dealing with the laborers worthy of his wages. I probably, you'll be glad to know Dr. Johnson, I'm probably closer to Dr. Johnson and to Charles Bayless on prophecies referring to Christ. So, for example, the Hosea um, 11 one, I do like Dr. Bayless, and I think you do too, Dr. Johnson, take that back to Balaam and the prophecy about the um, where there's duality. I think that's in Numbers 22, if I'm not mistaken, where, the, uh, where you compare that there is a, um, a individual coming out um, as well as the collective coming out and that that ultimately pointed to Christ. And so usually my, uh, my normal, so I've gotten in a lot of debates with Dr. Israel Loken. I don't remember if you were there when we had that conversation. Dr. Israel Loken, who's on our faculty, he tends to argue for Pesher and for other types of, I tend to believe that Jesus trained the original writers of the Gospels in which exact prophecies were actually pointing to him. And so I tend to think that they're probably looking at it much more literally than we give them credit for. So I'm not opposed to those categories. I'm just saying my, my leaning tends to be more in that, in that area that usually I think with a little bit more effort, even some of those that are a little bit more mysterious, like Hosea 11.1, 1, there actually are direct pointers in the Old Testament that actually show that the New Testament author was using it with some form of literary, uh, literal interpretation, that there's a literal connection um, in the Old Testament. So that's probably where I am normally when it comes to prophecy, especially prophecies pointing to Christ. Dr. Johnson, I don't know if you have anything to, I know this is a passion of yours, so. <laughs> I was going yeah. I was, I was to comment. Yeah. I, I think it's been a while since I've read it, but Rydelnik, I think deals with some of that. So you it might be interesting. We could, we could discuss that. I'll definitely have to but, check it out. But it, it, what's interesting is Rydelnik has a better explanation of Fruchtenbaum's position than Fruchtenbaum. Yeah. And Fruchtenbaum wrote him a letter a couple of years after he had written the endorsement for, for Rydelnik's book on, on Messianic Hope and said, you did a better job than I did, and uh, I'm using your illustrations instead of what I've used in the past. And Rydelnik has that framed on his on his wall. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I like I said. I mean, I we um, when I wrote the paper on the um, literal interpretation. This was uh, back for the council several years ago. Um, I was actually just dealing with how the New Testament authors are using. And one of the things I argued is. We should also take a look at how the Old Testament authors use the Old Testament and how the New Testament authors use the New Testament. So let's go back to that passage I mentioned earlier when, um, when Paul is using Jesus' statement, the labor is worthy of his wages. That's where I'm saying I'm not sure that that's necessarily. I, that's why I take that as an application. In other words, Paul's using it to justify payment for elders. You know, He uses the do not muzzle the ox which actually is in a passage about paying for uh, priests in the Old Testament. Well, the same thing, you have Jesus describing the disciples and what's happening when they're going out knocking on doors if they're offered something. I wouldn't say there's a direct one-to-one -one correlation. That's why I'm saying it's not used exegetically. But from Jesus' statement, is that a valid application of that idea that as his disciples were worthy of receiving funds when they were traveling around sharing the gospel... Are elders worthy of receiving payment for their services? And that's why I take that as an application as opposed to an exegetical use. Yeah. Yeah. We're probably very similar. I'm just, I tend to be a little bit more concerned when it deals with prophecies about Jesus. Because like I said, I think that's more where I see, we see a lot of texts where Jesus is clearly teaching the apostles, walking through which prophecies pointed to him. You know, that's the conversation all of us would love to get have when we get to the kingdom, right? And so I tend to give them a little bit more. I would just say I, it's not that I'm opposed to the categories. I just tend to give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt that there is an actual literal connection from the prophecy to 
the fulfillment um, than others do. Okay, next on my list, uh, Joe, uh, on page seven in your paper, mm-hmm. uh, and you're talking about uh, already not yet relative to the kingdom, and you uh, talk about historical premillennialism, and um, and they are faulty interpretation of Matthew twenty one forty three to forty four, where they teach that God took the kingdom away from Israel and gave it to the church. Mm-hmm. Well, I. Uh, joined Charles Ryrie in agreeing that that's what happened, that they took it. He's taken away, not from Israel, but from the Pharisees. Right. Not Israel, Mm -hmm. but from the Pharisees and gave it to the church. So, uh, you know, give give it to another nation. Mm -hmm. It's not said to be church in that passage. And uh, we, we had a discussion about this in one of our councils a few years ago, and George Gunn talked about this, and I responded to him just like I'm responding to you. Uh, And that's... um, why does Ryrie do that? Why does he say that that's the church? And he does it. He obviously doesn't do it because he holds to an already not yet. He does it for another reason. Uh, and uh, he does it because of the flow of the argument of Matthew. Right. And the change from the Israel mission to the Gentile mission. And Matthew 13 had already declared there's going to be this interregnum where there'll be a calling out of kingdom citizens, the Gentiles, that you were not expecting. Right. And that's the group or the nation I think it's not using nation in a technical sense. It's using it like in 1 Peter 2, uh, for example. Uh, I believe it's 1 Peter 2 where the church is called a nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not bad language, but we just need to look at it contextually. And I'm not doing that because I'm allegorizing. Right. So right. we need to be careful with how we say that. Uh, but again, they're saying, took it away from Israel. I'm saying taken away from the Pharisees and that generation of those who rejected Christ. The other main dispensational view is that it's the Jewish remnant in the end time days coming out of the trib that enters and inherits the kingdom. So, and both those views are stable views, in my opinion, and neither one are allegorizing. Yeah, scriptures. so I was pulling up my phone just to make sure I had the text there. So... It looks like it's saying the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, right? So um, I, can, I can go with you in terms of your um, view of this, um, it's humon there, and given to a people, and so that is the word ethne, um, producing its fruits. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my main consideration, though, is whether that question of the taking away, I don't think that's a... I think we agree that that's not a permanent removal from the nation of Israel and transfer to the church. It is during this um, interim period, right, when we're in the church age, that that responsibility of teaching about the kingdom is going to be extended to the church. But ultimately, the fulfillment lies with Israel. But yeah, I probably can clean up the... Yeah, and Matthew Matthew 8, you you go all the way back to Matthew 8, he says, many will come and sit down from the east and the west and dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning Gentiles will come and be in the kingdom, but you, I believe he's being sarcastic, you sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And so the idea, they're not expecting Mm -hmm. a great Gentile influx to be in that coming kingdom. They're not even thinking in those categories. And Jesus is trying to tell them they're wrong. And I think he, in Matthew 21, I agree with Ryrie, is church. But there are many that go the other way, and I'm not mad at anybody on that issue. I just don't want to be called an allegory guy because of that. Yep. Fair enough. I mean, I I guess I would stand up more for the um, view that it's being taken from current Israel and given to future Israel. Because... He says at the end, the Pharisees say they knew he was talking about them. So that's first century Israel. Mm-hmm. And then when he says the, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing fruit, I think it's hard to call the church a nation because, because the church consists of all nations. E- even the first Peter 2 reference, there's an argument that Peter is writing to the uh, uh, believing remnant within the church. It's one of the Jewish epistles. And I think the uh, view that he's speaking of future Israel also fits the argument of the book because you get into the Olivet Discourse and that's talking about the conversion of future Israel. So the the imagery is really 
Jewish because it comes right out of Kadesh Barnea, where God stopped working with one Jewish generation, the generation that came out of Egypt, and then he started working with a subsequent. Uh, what's that? Kind of, yeah, that's kind of a type. So anyway, I just wanted to put my two cents in. I I, I, I agree more with Alva J. McLean that it's talking about... I defend Ryrie on that. I just don't think he's being allegorical, and, and, we, and we need to be careful. And I don't want to be called allegorical either. We're wrestling with the exegesis and the flow of the argument of Matthew. Okay. I, uh, are there any already not yet's in the Bible? I would say I would agree with um, progressive dispensationalists when we're speaking theologically. So one of their common illustrations is, are you saved? Right? So they'll argue, well, yes, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm being saved from the power of sin. And one day, the not yet is, I'll be saved from the presence of sin. I think theologically we can say that there are some things that are already but not yet. What I'm saying is, in my opinion, when we're speaking of fulfillment, my issue is once again the, the issue, the label of fulfillment. Whenever we speak fulfillment, it's either 100% fulfilled or it's not. Now going back, and that's where I, I agree with Dr. Johnson, when you're dealing with a prophecy, I do allow for double fulfillment. In other words, I think there's a question whether Isaiah 14 is that question. Is part of that prophecy dealing with his son? And then is there an aspect of that prophecy that's dealing with the virgin and future Messiah? Um, I think that could be an example of double fulfillment. In other words, there's a part of that prophecy that refers to Isaiah's son, and then there's another part of that prophecy that refers to, uh, refers to Jesus. However, it's either 100% or nothing in terms of those aspects of fulfillment. So for me, you can say certain aspects of prophecies have been realized. Um, you could say that some of those certain benefits, and that's where I am with the New Covenant, I do believe that we're experiencing benefits from the new covenant right now. I think that Hebrews seems to illustrate that pretty clearly, but I don't, my already, not yet, my concern deals with fulfillment. fulfillment. I got you. And I do think that in systematic theology, there are aspects of um, our life where there is, and I, I agree on the topic of salvation, but that's not an ex exegetical decision. That's a theological category. Okay. Let me do a sense. corollary to this. Yeah. I was in a debate with some PD guys, mm -hmm. I believe it was ETS. I think I was talking to uh, Elliot about this last yeah. night. Uh, and I uh, mentioned, I do hold to some already not yet. So I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. And they said to me, the progressives, you can't do that unless you also hold to an already not yet for the Davidic kingdom. Yeah. Uh, how would you answer them? Once again, I'm distinguishing between fulfillment and theological categories. To me, the saved issue is a theological category. That's not, there's no covenant fulfillment that's involved. And in the same way, as I mentioned with that illustration of marriage, I hope today that I'm going to go home and take care of my wife um, in richness and importance. I hope that throughout my life, that as you all, as, and you know, Andy and I were just having this conversation about some brothers that we know that did break their covenant. I would hope that as you observe my life, that when you see my treatment of my wife, there will be times when those things will be realized that if in, in poverty and wealth and sickness and in health, you know, all these things, but the fulfillment doesn't happen until death do us part. And so to me, in my opinion, um, the main distinction is between fulfillment versus a theological category of something happening, you know, and that to me, you're, you're blending Categories, in other words, fulfillment is a very you know playrao is a very specific concept of what's happening versus a theological category of how the nature of soteriology and salvation works. You know, those are those that to me is a, a, a category distinction, not a. It's almost like, and that's you know, once again, I think that's one of the challenges with progressive dispensationalism is they'll try to take you here and then make you do the leap there. Well, you know, there was differences between Ryrie and Schaefer in, um, in terms of typology. So we're going to have four labels before we determine what 
literal interpretation yeah. is, you know, the type of it. Well, let me give you what I think is the best answer to the yeah. When they challenge you, say you can't do that unless yeah. you do it for the Viticum also. I think the best answer is to ask them who made up that rule. <laughs> That's very fair. You know, I mean, why is it that way? Yep. They don't really have an answer. They just, they're arguing from a system. Yep. They're not arguing exegetically at that point. Okay, we, uh, it's 2.03. Uh, Elliot's on at 2.30. Any more questions for Joe? Nobody has any further questions for Joe? You got off easy, Joe. Thank you. All right, let's, let's give him a hand. Let's take a break. And uh, come back at 2.30 for uh, Elliot Johnson's uh, presentation.